Okay, hi everyone, and uh, welcome to the Campaign for Trade Union Freedom session at uh, the Arise Festival, marking the 50th anniversary of the Pentonville Five. I'm Adrian Weir, Assistant Secretary of the Campaign, and we'll be chairing tonight's session. Uh, we meet during an unprecedented strike wave, certainly in recent times, and it seems that the, the pandemic has uh, changed the game. Before coronavirus, strike days were at an historic low, even though pay as a share of GDP had declined throughout the neoliberal period from 1980. If our share of the national cake had been getting smaller, then that part going to profits and dividends uh, has of course been growing. The rich are indeed getting richer. That was no accident. The whole point of neoliberalism was so that the elites could claw back that which had been taken from them in the period of social democratic advance after the Second World War. More or less, the 1% had got away with it until the pandemic. Using the pandemic as an excuse, employers started really to take the piss with either straightforward uh, pay cuts or fire and rehire. Rehire, of course, on lesser terms and conditions. For workers in the public sector or sectors funded by the public purse, often there's been no real pay rise for some years. And of course, in this, this year in particular, prices have been surging. Ofgem raised the energy price cap in April, and will do so again in October. For some, energy prices will double during 2022. So there is no such thing as a wage price spiral because while inflation is, is at around 10 or 11%, wage increases are about a quarter of that. At the same time as more or less stagnant wage growth, profits have been surging. So what we see is a resurgent militancy as workers seek to recoup losses and or keep up with price rises. What we don't see yet is a situation like the night, early 1970s when the strike wave had a clear political impetus to bring down the Tory government and render the anti-union laws redundant. So is this strike wave a fully justified wages struggle or will it develop to have wider political implications? For example, in the current strikes, the unions have conducted a ballot according to the law, but what will happen if members just walk out with no ballot? When he was General Secretary of Unite, Len McCluskey changed the rules of the union so that the union was not obliged to stay within the law. But what would happen elsewhere? Another question is, if, if during the P&O scandal, the unions, RMT and Nautilus, had called for solidarity action and other, work, uh, and other workers had responded. How would that have been? How would that situation have developed? So our panel tonight can, can consider these questions and more. Uh, the panel is Nabila Molana, a young Labour student representative, Steve Turner, Assistant General Secretary of Unite, Marion Carty, a UCU activist at Goldsmiths College in Southeast London, Sarah Woolley, the Bakers Union General Secretary, 
John Hendy QC, Vice President of the Campaign for Trade Union Freedom, and Rebecca Long Bailey, a great supporter of union rights and a key player in the Corbyn leadership team. So friends, um, what I'll, I'll do is ask people to speak in, in that order. And um, I just enter a, a, a small caveat that John Hendy has just uh, uh, messaged me to say that he's moving amendments in the House of Lords currently, and he's not sure um, what time he may be able to, to, to get away. But I'll, I'll try and uh, keep to the order that I've just re read out. So, uh, Nabila, um, it's over to you first. Thank you for the introduction, Adrian. It's really great to be here with all of you today, and I'm so honoured to be speaking alongside this incredible lineup of speakers. So, when I started working at 17, I knew nothing about workers' rights, and I didn't know what good working conditions were. If you had asked me to speak about trade unions, I wouldn't have known where to start. It wasn't until years later that I became a member of my trade union, Unite, and it was years after that that I actually started organising in my union. For years, my colleagues and I would work 50-hour weeks with no overtime, grievances would go undealt with, and when we asked for a union, we were offered a staff forum. I'm sure this is a story familiar to many. Like many other people in this country, I'm also a private renter. When our first landlord was hostile, we didn't know who to turn to. And when we said we were leaving and he wouldn't return our deposit, we didn't know we could do anything about it. Seven years later, our second landlord sent us an eviction notice under Section 21 of the Housing Act. And this came at one of the worst possible times. We had no savings to put down a huge deposit and we couldn't find another house within our budget. And we genuinely thought we were going to end up homeless. At the time, I didn't know community unions like Acorn existed. This isn't just my story or my experience. This is the experience of thousands of young people across the country. We know that young people today are the largest generation of private renters in this country. They're more likely to be in precarious work and those of us who are students are loaded with thousands of pounds of debt before we even enter the full-time job market. Most of us are one paycheck away from homelessness. We also know that none of this was inevitable. It was all a political choice. This cost of living crisis is a product of privatized systems, which puts our ability to live at the mercy of global markets. Prices are not set by workers or by consumers, they're set by firms owned by millionaires and billionaires the same firms that would rather spend time and money union busting than give their workers a pay rise. Because they know that being part of a union doesn't stop at just getting the pay rise we deserve, it's by improving our material conditions and then by extension, our lives. And organizing as a collective allows us to sort of question the power structures in this country. And this terrifies the establishment. After an incredible show of solidarity at the TUC demo in London last month, and at the Durham Miners Gala this weekend, it's clear that millions of us are no longer willing to settle for crumbs. We can't wait for a Westminster handout from this government. We know our rights, but we also know that rights aren't given. They are fought for and won. My first experience of organising with the union was with the community union, ACORN. 
And I saw incredible actions from comrades who had forced NatWest and TSB to drop their no DSS clause. They'd fought for and won landlord licensing in Bristol, Sheffield and Newcastle. And they'd got Bristol City Council to drop a four million council tax rise for the poorest. And of course, they'd won dozens of repairs, they'd stopped dozens of evictions, and we won back dozens of stolen deposits for ACON members. From trade unions, among many, many wins, we've seen UCU fight against unsustainable workloads and bad pensions. IWGB are running the longest justice strike. Unite won a string of pay rises for workers across this country, from dockyard workers in Plymouth to airport workers at Gatwick. GMB won an above inflation pay rise after a long running bin strike in Eastbourne. In Sheffield, the Bakers Union are organizing bar staff at one of the biggest food markets in the city. And for the first time in British history, call centre workers at BT, who are part of the Communication Workers Union, voted for strike action. The tide is turning. We are all demanding for what is rightfully ours. I joined my union because I didn't want to just hear about a housing revolution, a climate revolution or a workers revolution. I wanted to be a part of it. And I truly believe that our time is here and now. So wherever you are in the country, there will be a community organizing group. So join them, join your trade union, remind your neighbors, your families, your colleagues that there is strength in numbers and we don't have to put up with things as they are. And if there isn't an active local group, then you can start one. Because right now, there's a 17 year old who's starting her working life. There's another student signing the tenancy agreement without knowing their housing rights. And there's another young person who's been pushed to take on a job that pays them less than minimum wage. Young Labour, alongside our comrades in the trade union movement and community groups, have a duty to help organise these young people in our workplaces, communities and town halls to raise our living standards. One of the greatest lessons from the labour movement is that we fight for bread, but we fight for roses too. And I really look forward to fighting for a world of roses with each and every one of you. Okay, great. Thank, thank you very much, Nabila. You'll be very interested to know then that our next speaker, Steve Turner, um, who was, was the the officer within Unite who launched uh, Gusky, the uh, Unite community membership, which works alongside ACORN, um, helping people, young people particularly, um, with their housing and other, other social issues, um, uh, as well as signposting people to join the union um, if, if they get work as well. So no, it's great, thank you very much. And with that, I'll just go straight over to Steve. Steve, you're very welcome. Good to see you. And uh, the floor is yours. Great. Thanks very much. Uh, thanks very much, Adrian. Sorry, apologies, everyone. I'm on my iPhone at the moment. So if the signal's not great, I'll uh, apologise early for it. But uh, a huge thanks to you. And what a great contribution that was as well to kick off what I know is going to be a fantastic night. I just wanted to uh, thank everyone at the uh, Campaign for Trade Union Freedom, IER, Arise, everybody that's enabled tonight to take place and to put together what's going to be a fantastic panel of speakers. I know really uh, inspiring for everybody, I'm sure. As we emerge from uh, COVID and into what could be a very deep recession and a very dangerous recession now for working class people and our communities, of course. We're certainly in the heart of a cost of living crisis. And we've seen that with 
rising costs themselves directly, whether that's food or energy or rent or basic clothing, inflation at 11 percent, interest rates are rising. And we've seen an explosion on what were already record numbers of those, particularly children, of course, uh, living in poverty across our communities. And many of those living in poverty work for their poverty because wages are so low in the UK and millions of people, of course, are reliant simply on the minimum wage, not even the government's living wage or the real living wage, but just simply the minimum wage. And of, of course, ironically, we've got a tight labour market right now, in part because of the consequences of Brexit, but still real term wages are falling. We've had 12 years of austerity politics, which have been pay cuts effectively to public sector workers in particular, but the private sector has taken a lead from that year on year. And for many, many people, wages are still not back to levels that we would have projected pre the financial crash of 2007-8. And on top of that, we've got automation, we've got the Green New Deal and this transition towards a greener planet, but green jobs and everything that that means, what that means for our movement to ensure not only we're on decent pay and terms and conditions, but we leave no worker or community behind as we transition towards a greener um, economy. But of course, right in the heart of all this crisis, it's workers that once again are being asked to pay for a crisis not of their making. And we say, and we've said it consistently, enough is enough. Enough is enough, and not on our watch are we going to be uh, seen to allow this to happen. But of course, the reality is the seeds of this wage theft were sown many, many years ago. For 40 years, we've seen neoliberal politics, not just here in the UK, but across the globe. This systematic and absolutely deliberate attack on trade unions, on collective bargaining, on our organisation, on our shop stewards movement, the sort of criminalisation, if you like, of any meaningful action wherever the state or the agents of the state can get away with it. We've seen the dismantling of the institutions of collective bargaining. We've seen privatisation and deregulation at a scale that we've never witnessed before. And all of that's been at a global level, but of course led here in the 80s by Thatcher and in the United States in, through our access with Reagan. And we've seen the full weight of the state, wave after wave of anti-union legislation, tightening the noose around the ability of unions and individual members of unions, collective organisations of shop stewards to do what we do best that we saw in what you were describing very early on in the introductions of this Adrian in the 70s and even into the 80s where shop stewards movement, working class people fought back and defied the state, in fact brought down the state, not just for a pay rise but for the future of the industries in which they worked in. We've seen the strengthening of peace, police powers, we've seen military level infiltration of our organisations, all of which have recently been exposed with spy cops and everything that's gone uh, with that, of course. And the reaction really to growing power of workers was this whole wave of anti-union legislation that we've lived through despite a long period of Labour administration, of course, it has to be said here in the UK. And it's not uh, lost on us that just 50 years ago, this, this month actually, we saw the Pentonville Five released as a consequence of a wave of militant strike action, walkouts, occupations in support of five dockers that were wrongly imprisoned and then being released from prison on the back of that protest, of course. And that general strike that was called by the TUC, but in the end wasn't required because workers had taken their own decisions that they were going to walk in support of five dockers that have been imprisoned. In the same year, we saw the Shrewsbury, 24, well, in fact, a few months later, of course, but the first building workers uh, strike 
that had been an effective level of strike action across the building industry. And later, we saw building workers, including Ricky Tomlinson, of course, and others imprisoned uh, for that. And only recently did we see justice done there. And that was shop stewards. Shop stewards were organising those campaigns, not even unions formally or officially themselves. And we saw miners and steel workers, railway workers, printers, dockers, a whole host of workers, organised working class, standing up and fighting back for their industries. Right through the 70s and the 80s, we saw this huge wave of rank and file militancy. And at that time, it's not lost on us, that 80% of all workers, when I started work in 1982, 80% of all workers were covered by a collective bargaining agreement. We had 12 million working people in trade unions, uh, which was half the working population at least. And we saw 65% of everything that the country generates by way of wealth through its GDP going to working people through wages. 65% of GDP went to workers via their wage packets. 40 years on, what have we seen? We've seen an halving of the trade union movement. We've seen a decline in strike action for a decade, now probably the lowest level uh, in decades. We've now got about 25% of working people covered by collective bargaining agreements. And we've got less than 50% of GDP reaching wage packets. And that's 15% wage theft that's left our wage packets and gone into the pockets of the already rich, the corporate elite, uh, the dividend holders, the shareholders, the hedge funds, the tax havens. They've ripped us off. 15% of the collective wealth that we generate has been stolen from us over the course of that period. And this is a question really about how do we get that back? So, you know, Tories are now pushing for further attacks. We've seen the um, move to get agency workers to break strikes. We've seen the prohibition of strikes in certain key sectors. We've seen minimum service level agreements being talked about for the rail and the post and other areas of key industrial uh, influence where despite a strike, you have to keep the services uh, running. And we've seen all of that rhetoric coming from the Tories. While within Labour, of course, we've actually seen some really positive stuff. And I wanted to thank, I know Keith and John are speaking later if John can get out of his own amendment here, but a fantastic job of work, consistent pressure has been put on Labour over a long period of time. Jeremy picked it up as leader, of course, with John McDonald, Becky Long-Bailey, who's on this call a little later. Fantastic team, picked all of that up and put together a programme, an inspiring, ambitious manifesto for change in 17 and 19. And that's about promotion of collectivism, about union recognition, collective bargaining, sectoral collective bargaining, that fair wage agreement that's in Labour's New Deal for workers a fantastically well-drafted piece of work that we want to see in legislation, of course, but it requires a Labour government. We've got public contracts coming back in-house. We've got banning of fire and rehire. We've got better job security for those in a casualised labour market. We've got the repeal of anti-union laws and that new framework, really, for industrial relations. I'm sorry, Adrian, I'm in the house at the moment. I've got a dividend bell going off, so I'll bear with it, but if it's too much, just wave at me and I'll stop and I'll come back to you. So I wanted to thank Andy McDonald and Angie Ranger uh, in order to, for that going through. And we need to make sure that their feet are very much on the throat of those in influence within our party to make sure that that's uh, enacted. But of course, just in finishing, uh, Adrian, if history shows us anything, it's that struggle, direct action, civil disobedience, struggle that secures progress whether that's at a human level, social level or political level. So we can't afford to just simply wait for a Labour government or politicians to do any of this. 
we need to build our own organisations, to grow our unions, to build the alliances we're talking about earlier in communities with social movements. We need to challenge, our challenge is really to develop confidence, to inspire and mobilise people to take action, to educate and to agitate across working class communities. Because when we're confident, when we're confident, anything is possible. And I'll leave it there. Solidarity. Thank you very much, Steve. And the bell, the bell's a bit like Quasimodo at the end there, but yeah, great. Thank you. Thank you very much. And I think actually it's quite good the way that the speakers are, are merging into uh, one another, because the point that you raised about the building workers dispute of 1972, which of course was lost, resulted in mass casualization of the building trade. After that strike, the um, direct employment virtually disappeared from the industry. And if, if you like, the building trade was a precursor to what we've got now. Casual labor, no fixed contracts, um, and, and all the bad, bad news that, that goes with that of um, phony self-employment. And of course, with agency, um, uh, self, phony self-employment, trade union membership often goes down the tubes uh, uh, as well. So the, the places of work become less safe, pay, pay takes a cut, and the employers set, set the agenda. And who would have thought that you know, 50 years later, university teachers would be, would be suffering the same um, changes to their labour market conditions that building workers would, uh, did all those years ago. And so this links straight into um, our next speaker, Marion Carty, who's a UCU activist at Goldsmiths College in South East London, where they've been leading the fight against uh, the casualization uh, of um, of, of intellectual labour of um, of uh, the the university teachers. So, Marion, uh, I call on you to to speak to the uh, the meeting. Thank you, uh, thank you so much for inviting me. Again, I feel I feel honoured to be on the same panel of um, the esteemed company, uh, Nabila included, with uh, Sarah. Uh, Becky, Steve, and later uh, John John Hendy. Um, yes, yeah, so um, I uh, I'm I'm just going to start with some statistics about casualisation in the um, HE sector in in universities and in FE. So 46% of universities and 60% of further education colleges have employees on zero hour contracts. Um, and um, in addition to that. You've got many university tutors who are on fixed term contracts for a term, maybe for a year, maybe for three years if they're lucky. And these people are not um, uh, youngsters who are just filling in their time, but these are serious uh, career specialist academics who've written books, who uh, students want to come to university in order to be taught by them, but they have precarious conditions. So why does it matter that these workers um, are um, on precarious uh, contracts? Well, casualization is dehumanizing. And whether it's in health, 
Um, we've seen the, the mighty and the Churchill cleaners, the mighty workers at um, St George's and the Churchill cleaners um, on, on our railways fighting uh, for being um, for their sick pay and um, holiday pay. Well, the same goes for uh, university lecturers. They're not paid sick pay. If they're ill, they have to make up their, their lectures and they don't get any holiday pay. So they're chasing uh, one contract after another. And they're essentially um, second-class citizens. They're vulnerable to exploitative practices. They're denied um, the planning of a career. And I think what, what's most um, uh, most insidious is they can't set down roots. They can't be got, belong to a community. They can't have families because they never know where they're going to be working next. And this isn't good for um, our students. Our students want more time with their tutors. They don't want uh, their their student fees being sp spent on fancy buildings. They want they want their lecturers to be able to spend more time with them because they know that the, the uh, their teachers uh, teaching conditions, working conditions, impact on their learning conditions. And it's not just simply um, a sectional fight. We're fighting in Goldsmiths. We're fighting uh, redundancies and fire and rehire. But it's also a fight for higher education. It's a notion of a of a university. Uh, sector not rooted in profit, but based on the public good, where young people can come and learn, expand their horizons, and be filled with a vocation to improve society. And at the same time, mature students get a second chance to study, to change uh, professional direction, and so enhancing just not their own lives, but those of the, uh, the communities around them. So essentially, we're fighting a top-down destruction of higher education. Uh, universities are becoming cash engines for consultants, senior managers, private landlords who literally prey on our students and um, um, provide accommodation that is substandard at extortionate rents. And it was great to hear Nabila speaking about ACORN and the, and the fight to organise within the rented sector, the private rented sector. And of course, it's the students and the workers in the universities that are bearing the brunt, including the communities, because uh, landlords are charging such high rents, you get the gentrification process um, impacting on local communities who can no longer can no longer um, afford the rents in their areas and stay where their family and friends and where they've grown up. Um, now, the very idea of university education as a right and a public good is dissolving in favor of profiteering. And Goldsmiths is uh, an exemplar. And just to give you a little bit of information about Goldsmiths, we're a very small college um, in Southeast London in Lewisham, a very poor area. We're an arts and humanities college. We have a teacher education um, uh, uh, program. And um, the media and communications department and the art department have very um, have uh, world's uh, reputations in terms of the quality of education, and our students are mainly from working class backgrounds. And the area around um, southeast London is, of course, um, mainly um, populated by people from, with immigrant um, roots and from lots of different ethnic minorities. So we are a working class institution. Um, we also have the highest density um, in certainly in England of uh, union membership. We have uh, over a thousand members 
uh, and that's something like 75%. So um, we've always smashed the 50% uh, threshold in all our union disputes. So we're a strong branch, we're a very strong branch. However, the current, um, the current uh, senior management are out to uh, do a bit of union busting. Um, we've been on strike for 37 days this academic uh, year. Um, fighting a restructure that isn't necessary. And of course, they, they talk about um, uh, the restructure being in the interests of, um, of the students. Uh, they say it's to improve the student experience. They're going to centralise services, get rid of permanent jobs and replace them with casualised workers. And this is all to improve the student experience. So what's this student experience? Well, that's the one where you get to pay uh, thousands of pounds a year to go to university, go into a lifetime of debt, get more shiny buildings, more highly paid staff that students will never ever meet and pay extortionate rents to private landlords. It's that student experience that they're talking about. But we're talking about a high quality education uh, delivered by devoted teachers. And that's the same high quality education with de uh, delivered by devoted teachers that was available just 25 years ago for free as an entitlement, as a right. And that's where we want to get back to. So, um, so we're um, currently on an assessment boycott. We've had 37 days of strike action. We're on assessment boycott at the moment. And just to, um, uh, I'm about to serve notice for another strike, um, strike action in the new term. Um, now, what's happened just recently is that two colleagues, a head of department and a deputy head of department in the largest department, Media and Communications and Cultural Studies, which is also the department that generates the most money, which has a, a world-class reputation. These two colleagues have been, uh, well, de facto suspended. They haven't used the words, but their college emails have been taken away and they cannot communicate with anyone. And why, why did this happen? Because they informed the students that because of um, SMT re recalcitrance and failure to move and to see reason in terms of these redundancies that they're insisting on, uh, they told them that they may not be able to graduate this academic year and um, some may not be able to progress. The students, by the way, have been wonderful. They're completely backing us. They're, they've written letters to, to the council, to the um, SMT, and um, they've, they've stood side by side with, with, their, with their lecturers and, their, um, and the academic staff that are also uh, threatened. So, um, so these two colleagues have been de facto suspended. Um, and we also have an appeals process starting uh, next week on the 13th of July. Um, uh, there are seven brave colleagues who are appealing the process uh, because they just want to expose the, um, the senior management's ideological attack um, on, um, on, our, on, our, on our colleagues' jobs. And um, so there's going to be a rally on the 13th of July, 12 till 2. We've got Joe Grady coming. We have John Hendy is down to speak and uh, Michael Rosen um, amongst, amongst others. So um, rallies are really important. I think uh, picket lines, rallies, 
branch meetings. Meetings like this are important for the movement because it's here that we, we get to know each other, we discover and nurture um, our solidarity, we share our ideas, we share our complaints and difficulties in making ends meet in our, uh, the, the um, outrageous actions of, uh, of, of our management. And it's, and it's on, in rallies and picket lines that solidarity grows. And this time we spend together, I think, nourishes the hope and builds our determination to, to fight. And I just want to finish on, um, on a quote from another dispute that happened in the 70s. It was the Grunwick strike. Um, uh, Grunwick uh, workers, uh, mainly uh, Asian women from East Africa who were expelled from East Africa. And, um, and Jayaban Desai, um, staged a walkout which lasted two years. They didn't win their fight, they were never reinstated, but they did win better conditions for future workers at Grunwick. So I just want to finish by what, uh, what she said. We, we've, we've, we've learned from uh, Shelley's poem, Lions um, in Slumber, and here's another reference to the lions. So she said to the manager, she said, what you are running here is not a factory, it's a zoo. But in a zoo, there are many types of animals. Some are monkeys who dance on your fingertips. Others are lions who can bite your head off. We are lions, Mr. Manager. That was great. Thank you very much, uh, Marion. And uh, I mean, the points that you, you make, or the numerous points that you make about, about a casualization of, uh, of labor in higher education, I'm sure most people uh, wouldn't even believe it, it that you know university teachers are, are just um, expendable really that they're only on sessional contracts and whatever so that was that was very good and good luck with your rally and um, I hope John gets there doesn't look like he's getting here this evening but I hope he's uh, gets to your to your rally um friends we have um, over 300 people on this call at the moment from uh, from Manchester, Chalfont St Peter, which I believe is in Buckinghamshire, Aberdeen, Wall's End, West Yorkshire, and uh, Italy. So we've got a good spread of people participating, and uh, welcome, welcome to everybody wherever you're tuning in from. Uh, before I go on to Sarah, I'd just like to call on Sam Browse who's one of the uh, Arise organisers, just to talk about the organisation uh, of the festival over the month of July. Sam. Hello, everyone, and thank you, and welcome to Arise. Um, as uh, uh, Adrian said, this is part of uh, a wider programme of activity that's happened as part, as, as part of the annual Arise Festival, and that takes, past in the, it takes place in the whole, in whole month of July. Um, we've got a really ambitious... Uh, program of, um, of events and I really do encourage you to go to our Eventbrite, Eventbrite page to check it out and, um, and see what else is going on. I'd really like to flag too in particular um, our next event this week um, which is happening on Wednesday it's called Real Change in Ireland Lessons for the Left and there's Emma Sherin from Sinn Féin, John McDonnell um, who, who you all, all know and Jeff Bell from Labour Virus Unity will be on that platform that's this, this Wednesday. So hopefully we'll see you there. The final thing I wanted to say, I'll keep this short and snappy, 
is that um, events like these, like I say, or, or series of events like these that have um, a real ambitious, like I say, program of, of activities and events and things to get involved in, they cost money. Um, and, and, and they cost lots of time in terms of volunteers time and things like that. We're an entirely uh, volunteer run organization and we thrive on donations from um, from people like you. And actually, if 20 people on one of these calls donate a tenner each, that's um, that's us paid for for the whole for the whole festival, effectively. Um, if they do that every single time. So if, if you can dig deep, that'd be fantastic. If you enjoyed what you're listening today, please, um, please show it um, and click on that donate link. And um, hopefully we'll see you at more. Uh, um, events like this in the future and, um, and and we'll be able to keep doing more events like this in the future too so that's three things welcome check out our um, program of events um, especially real real change in ireland and also please 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 hit that donate button um, that's how we that's how we live that's how we continue doing events like this and i'm providing this sort of stuff for the movement and thanks very much adrian for calling me Okay, thanks. Thanks very much, Sam. And uh, we now move on um, to Sarah Woolley. Sarah Woolley is the uh, General Secretary of the uh, Baker's Food and Allied Workers Union. She's also on the executive of the General Federation uh, of Trade Unions and has been a, a stalwart, stalwart supporter of the work of the campaign uh, and its association with the Institute. Um, Sarah comes out of Greg's. She worked, she's worked in the fast food industry um, and uh, her union, of course, has been to the forefront in the campaign to organise McDonald's uh, in, in Britain. So um, very, very warm welcome to you, Sarah, and the floor is yours. Thanks, Adrian, and, and thank you for the invitation to speak tonight. Um, I know it's been said a few times, but what an established platform of speakers. It's a, a truly is a privilege to, to virtually sit alongside you all. Um, I wanted to start off by saying, if now isn't the time for a new deal for workers, when is the time? Um, we've had 12 years of austerity, attack after attack on working people, whether that be the, the dismantling of the NHS and our education opportunities, I know Marion's just mentioned some, but others, you know, the rise of academies and the removal of the English Union Learn Fund. Um, we've had public sector pay freezes, or more accurately, cut after cut after cut. We've had more and more hurdles for disabled workers to access the vital supports, services that they need, um, and universal credit. I mean, what a shambles, need I say it anymore? And this has been finished off by... A global pandemic over the last couple of years that has showed the world who key workers are, who actually keeps the world turning, because it isn't the billionaires, it's the food workers, the transport and education staff, the emergency services and postal workers, it's the cleaners and the retail staff and the many, many more working people that have been told for years to be thankful that they've got a job. If they don't like it, there's hundreds more people queuing up to take it off them. Not to push for too much, not to not to push for too much better because, you know, they are, after all, only doing basic roles, according to the bosses. Um, and for whom profits of the elite have taken priority, not only of their well-being and health and safety, but their terms and conditions and their pay as well. And these bosses and the government, don't care about the fact that there are millions of workers 
millions of key workers that have kept going through the global pandemic, certainly in our case of food workers, that are unable to put food on their table, pay their bills, heat their homes, not that you necessarily need it today, but we will do coming towards the end of the year, or even in some cases get to and from work, the, the money that they are paid is just not enough to see them through. And that's absolutely disgraceful in 2022 in the UK. But what's really inspiring is seeing the workers over the last few months standing up and saying no more. You know, we've got the, the fantastic R&T strikes, UCU, CWU, Unite, GMB, PCS. There are so many more that I could use my six minutes just to talk about all the people that have been taking action. Um, and who would have thought that criminal barristers would go out on strike? I mean, that, sh that truly shows us the world that we are in currently. And this is important because it's giving others the confidence. It's inspiring. And I said this on an RMT picket line a few weeks ago. These people, these workers are inspiring millions of others to say that, to start believing that they are worth more too than they're currently getting. People on, who only a few years ago would have left one crap job for another and just thought, you know, I'll just I'll just move on. It's not worth trying to, to make things better. But they're now starting to see that standing together side by side in solidarity, they can enact change. And we've got to grasp this opportunity with both hands um, because no one, and I repeat, no one, not least of all a Tory government, is going to freely give us anything. And we've got to now come together as a movement and not only work together within the trade union movement, but with community groups like ACORN, Disabled People Against Cuts, the Ron Todd Foundation, and many other amazing like-minded organisations who reach far further than we do, as as to reach far further than we do, um, to demand change. We've got to work together to force through the new deal that workers deserve. Because without that further reach, and without working with these community groups, um and social movements we just become an ineffective echo chamber all we're going to do is talk to each other we're not going to reach out to the millions and millions of people that don't know what a trade union is that still bloody think that johnson's done a good job and that he's being treated appallingly by his own party these are the people that we've got to reach out to and we've got to tell them they deserve better as well than believing that um, so I'm going to finish on this because uh, I know kind of we've still got lots more um, speakers. I'm not celebrating the fact that Johnson's going because he's not quite gone yet. He'll hang on until the, the, the very end of days because I know the next one that comes through will be more focused, will be more cruel and there will be millions of more working people die as a result of them and their actions. Um because they will continue the work that he should have started but got distracted from. There has never been a more important time to organise our workplaces, organise our communities and be ready for them because they will hit the ground running. And we've got to make sure that when they do, they're hitting us hard and we're pushing back in solidarity even harder because otherwise, God only knows we're gonna, where we're going to be in, in, in the next five years. So solidarity to everybody that's taking action. Keep doing what you're doing. You're inspiring absolutely millions of people. Um, and I'll see you on a picket line soon. Thank you. Okay, Sarah, thanks, thanks very much. And uh, in summary, if not now, when is, I think, 
I think your message. Yeah. So that's great. Look, um, John, John Hendy's just messaged me to say that the Lords have just adjourned and he's looking for a private room to join us on his phone. So I tend to take Rebecca Long Bailey now uh, while John's trying to, to get online. Is that OK, Becky? That's great. Thanks, Adrian. Okay. Sorry, if I'm a bit out of breath. I've just been running all the way back because we've had multiple votes. Um, but I think I just got the end of Sarah's speech and I, I know that you've heard from some amazing speakers tonight who might have talked about this already, but we're in the midst of the worst cost of living crisis in over 30 years. And as winter hits, frankly, we're going to face economic misery. Now, even the mainstream pundits are ringing the alarm bell. Last week, we had Martin Lewis, the money expert. He warned of civil unrest if the government didn't do more to help people managing rising energy costs. And at the moment, we've got 14 and a half million people living in poverty, and that includes over four million children. And two thirds of these children live in a household where at least one person works. But rather than help support working people, the government's offered pitiful levels of support. At the same time, as it restores bankers' bonuses and it allows energy companies to make billions of pounds in profit. And on wages, the stories equally as bleak right across the country are being dwarfed by skyrocketing inflation. And remember, this is on top of 12 years of austerity, liberal job casualisation and wage freezes. And when workers have dared to stand up and say, we need a pay rise to survive this, the government treats them with derision and contempt. And we saw that in how the government responded to the RMT strike. They stoked division. They wanted a Thatcher moment, quite frankly, to divide, divide the nation and demonise the trade union movement. But they were in for a bit of a surprise, weren't they? They weren't ready for Mick Lynch and they underestimated the support the public gave RMT members because the people of this country are decent people. And they knew that this wasn't just about rail workers suffering poor pay at the hands of an unscrupulous government and employer. This fight was much bigger than that. It was a fight for workers all over the country, a fight against excessive greed and austerity. And so realising this, the government responded with spin. We saw conservative politicians trotting out the most spurious lines about wage price spirals and the need for wage restraint. A fact is it wasn't true. Wage restraint might have been a valid argument if the cause of our inflation was actually increasing wages, but it isn't in this case, far from it. Inflation was actually caused by a storm of factors, including the war in Ukraine, pandemic disruption to global supply chains, and frankly, the profiteering of large corporations in response to the inflationary environment. And that's why using these old economic arguments for a simple wage price spiral would actually damage the economy further and it'd suck out demand, making the prospect of a deep recession even more likely. And then the picture looks even bleaker when you look at the emerging policy positions of all the Tory leadership candidates as they're parading around the TV studios. They're all trying to outdo each other on corporation tax cuts, for example instead of bolstering tax take to actually fund public spending, support those who are struggling and increase 
investment in industrial strategy to support wage growth and economic growth across the spectrum. And so in this ideas vacuum, it's up for us within up to us within the movement to fill that vacuum. And there's a few urgent actions that we need to demand to protect our community throughout this crisis. First is demanding the inflation proofing of incomes as it provides short term protection against rising prices. We also need to look at imposing short term price controls of rent, energy prices, food and fuel. And beyond that, we need a new deal for workers. And that's a new social settlement for the working people of Britain. It's a deal that makes the bosses and the wealthy pay their fair share of tax instead of breaking the backs of the people within our communities. It's a deal that demands universal, publicly owned utilities to bring our bills down and drive up investment in a real Green New Deal. And it's a deal that ends the era of bandit capitalism and protects and extends the rights of workers. It respects the dignity of work with a dignified pay packet. And it's simple. If a company does well, it should pay well. And there are simply no excuses left anymore. Now, I think it's clear that the Labour movement has spoken in recent months. It won't sit around waiting, hoping for political change or that some political leader will come along like a knight in shining armour to fight with them for a decent life for all. One by one, I think workers are realising, if not me, then who? Who will fight for my quality of life? And they're realising the political power that they hold within themselves. Rail workers have been standing up. Teachers and school staff have been standing up. NHS workers are standing up and the more who stand up more will stand with them because a movement is building and it's a movement to fight for a radical transformative agenda for working people and frankly it's time for us all to pick a side I'm pretty sure I know what side most people who are watching this will be on but you're either on the side of working people or you're not and time has come to make a decision and honestly I think that growing movement that transcends political boundaries scares the government. It scares them because they know the more politically awakened people become, the more this government's days will be numbered. And so the government will do everything it can to stop this awakening of social and political consciousness. And we've already seen the government try to do this. They've passed laws that curtailed the right to protest. But tonight, as we speak, we're moving into a debate within Parliament on a law that will enable employers to bring in agency workers to break strikes. That's legislation that will pit worker against worker. It will deliberately inflame industrial disputes. And ultimately, the whole purpose of it is to stamp out the ability of workers to collectively bargain for decent terms and pay. Now, Mick Lynch said recently, if we're not bargaining, we have to beg. And I don't want any working class people in this country to have to beg their employers for a decent living. And neither do I, and neither do we. So stand up, speak out, and proudly and publicly support every single worker fighting in industrial disputes over the coming months. 
demand the quality of life that they deserve and that we all deserve in this country, one of the richest economies on earth. And always remember this famous saying, because the fight will be tough, but I'd rather die on my feet than live on my knees. Solidarity. Terrific. Thank you very much, Betty. That was that was great. And of course, you you almost quoted Pete Seeger there. Um, which side are you on, boys? Which side are you on? And I think that's so apt um, because in my own CLP in North London, when we've had this discussion, people just chime in and say, oh, just wait for the next Labour government. We'll, we'll sort it out. The next Labour government will do it. Well, that might not be for two years. So, you know, workers have got to take a stand now, not just wait till 2024 to get a maybe improvement in their rights at work, in their standard of living, um, for action on rents and, uh, and, and, and fuel and food. So we're, I'm sure everyone who listened was very inspired by your, uh, your contribution. And thank you so much. Thank you. Our final speaker uh, this evening is uh, John Hendy QC, Lord John Hendy, uh, Vice President of the Campaign for Trade Union Freedom. Um, what can I say? I, I, if I started to introduce John, I, we'd be here till the end of the meeting if I referred to all the famous trade union cases that he's represented uh, workers on, uh, the work that he's done on the last Labour uh, manifesto, the Labour Rights section of that. But I won't. I'll just introduce him, John Hendy, QC. Thanks, Adrian. Uh, sorry I'm late. Um, I wanted to speak about the cost of living uh, crisis. On the 3rd of May of this year, British Petroleum, BP, announced profits of $6.2 billion. $6.2 billion. On the 5th of May, Shell announced profits of $9.1 billion. Those $15.3 million billion dollars combined were not the profits for the last year. They were the profits for the first three months of 2022. Their rate of profit had increased by 300% over the previous year. And that, of course, reflects the fact that the oil companies, acting as a global cartel, decided that they were going to put up the price of energy. And they knew that people around the world require energy and that they would pay for that uh, energy. It didn't reflect a rise in the cost of exploration, drilling, transport, storage or refining. It didn't reflect the rising cost of anything. It was simply that they decided that they wanted to make more profit. So when, and, and of course, the rise in energy uh, prices has rippled through to cause other commodities to rise in price uh, as well, particularly those which involve transport, which mo most things uh, do. So that when we read about inflation, it's not an act of God or nature or some inevitability or the product of uh, forces in the world which are completely uncontrollable. It's about capital making pro profit. Now, 
that's the price side of the cost of uh, living crisis. Let's just talk about the wage side of it for a moment. As prices have risen, of course, the value of, of uh, wages uh, has fallen. In fact, currently, wages are nominally rising at 4% per annum. In the public sector, it's only 2% per annum. But inflation is rising at 9.1% and is predicted to rise even higher in the very near future. Now, you don't have to be a mathematician to work out that that means that wages are devaluing at a rate of 5% all the time. In other words, the wages that you earn are worth 5% less than they were uh, uh, at the beginning of the year. So when uh, we're told that there's a danger of a wage price spiral and that workers ought to exercise restraint in their wage claims, as the governor of the Bank of England and the prime minister have uh, urged uh, on us, or that RMT and other unions are holding the country to ransom, nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, the, the failure of wages to keep up with the a rate of increase of prices is in fact deterring inflation, diminishing uh, inflation. So wage increases below the rate of inflation or even at the rate of inflation will not cause further inflation. And we should completely reject that that, uh, thesis. But the question is, of course, why, why now wages are falling in real value whilst prices are increasing in real uh, cost. And the answer, I'm afraid, is that we are in a weak position. We, the working class in Britain, are in a weak position. And we're in a weak position because we have lost uh, uh, collective bargaining coverage. That's to say, the proportion of workers who have the benefit of terms and conditions negotiated by trade unions uh, with employers. In the, before Thatcher came to power in 1979, 85% of British workers were covered by a collective agreement. That percentage has fallen now to about 23%. In fact, in reality, it's a lot less than that. And when you consider that most collective bargaining, particularly in the public sector, excludes collective bargaining over wages because wages are set either by a government price cap or wage cap or by a pay review uh, body. The level of collective bargaining has diminished to a dangerous degree. And I just wanted to review with you the, the, re- the method by which the damage to collective bargaining has been done. It hasn't been the same all other countries, Britain is, is nearly unique in such a rapid fall in collective bargaining coverage. It's been done by derecognition, outsourcing, globalization, that's to say, exporting entire industries from our country to underdeveloped countries, privatization, the removal of public procurement 
requirements. That's to say, when public contracts are uh, given out, it used to be the case under the Fair Wages re Resolution that uh, the, the uh, going rate had to be observed. That was got rid of by the uh, Tories. Wages councils, which covered three and a half million workers, have been abolished. And of course, above everything else, is the attack on trade union freedoms and the right to uh, strike. You know all the uh, procedural requirements imposed on trade unions and the, the total ban on secondary action uh, and so on. And as Becky's just uh, described, the attack continues with this statutory instrument which will allow agency workers to be brought in as uh, strike bre breakers. Now, uh, the question is what to do about it. And I'm sure that all our speakers this evening uh, have said much the same thing, and it won't really help for me to repeat it. But we are not going to get any changes in the law with the present uh, government. And therefore, we've got to take other steps, industrial steps and political pressure to unite, to combine, to spread the word, to explain to people just how capitalism works and how people are being held down and re repressed by it by it and what needs to be done to organize to get us out of this hole and let nobody say oh well we, it's it's the situation's irrecoverable we did it years ago we've done it over and over again we did it in the uh, 19th century we did it in the 20th century and we'll do it again in the 20 21st century i've got absolutely no doubt uh, about that but our unions will have to lead us and that places a heavy burden on them and you as trade unionists and trade union uh, activists. Thanks very much for listening. I'm sorry I was late. I was detained in fighting for some amendments to the public procurement bill in the House of Lords. Solidarity. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, John. And um, we're very grateful for you making the time to, to get out of the chamber to come come and address the, the, the meeting this evening. Great, thank you. Thanks again. Um, friends, The I think what we've sketched out tonight is that um, since the advent of the uh, neoliberal period, uh, since, um, since 1980, uh, we've seen this shift of GDP um, in favour of capital and away from wages. Um, we've seen the collapse of collective bargaining and of course, at the same time, it's been accompanied by a rise in vulture capitalism. But as John John Hendy says, we don't have to just we don't have to accept that. That we at the moment this wages struggle is a real fight back against uh, against everything that's gone on in the past uh, forty years, and we must of course send our solidarity to all those workers um, in in struggle. The, um, the Conservative government couldn't be more two-faced and, and barefaced in, in their contempt for working people. At the, uh, in March of this year, during the P&O scandal, um, Grant Shapps, a man with multiple identities, of course, um, called for a ban on agency labour to be uh, bust in as they were in Dover and other ports to take the place of the, of the sacked seafarers. 
within three months of saying that he's going to legislate uh, against uh, fire and rehire, he's now um, going to introduce, uh, as John and, and Becky has referred to, this new statutory instrument to allow um, agency labour to, to be used in, in, uh, in if the employer is confronted with a strike. Um, it, they couldn't be more two-faced or barefaced in, in their um, uh, contempt for, for working people. They must think that we're all mugs. And of course, it's not just the um, new legislation allowing for agency labour to be used as strike breakers. The government say that they're going to propose um, a minimum service agreement um, firstly on the railways, but it could be extended to elsewhere, where the union will be obliged to um, uh, ensure that a certain number of workers go to work to keep a minimum service running. In other words, the union will be obliged to undermine its own industrial dispute. And there's all sorts of spin-offs to consider um, in that. And lastly, of course, the government are going to propose increasing the statutory damages that a large union would have to pay an employer in the case of an unlawful dispute from £250,000 to £1 million. This is a direct and full frontal attack on, on our un unions. And we, um, we not only do we stand in solidarity with those uh, involved in industrial disputes, but we must... Uh, highlight the, the injustice of the legal framework and campaign to make sure that um, in the future, the, the laws are changed to be very much more in our favour. So thank you all to our panellists, Nabila, Steve Turner, Marion Carty, uh, Sarah Woolley, John Hendy QC, and Rebecca Long-Bailey MP. And thank you very much for your uh, participation wherever you are in the world, I can say. Um, great, thanks that you've uh, joined us and uh, see you again soon. Goodbye. <laughs>